0: Hi everyone, I'm Petrus and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you've watched my content so far and liked it, please consider liking this video, subscribing and donating on Patreon. Today, we're talking with Dr. Veenert Bosov. Veenert is the son of Karol Bosov, the founder of Urania and grandson of Prime Minister Hendrik Verwurt. Veenert has served as MP for the Freedom Front Plus, representing the Northern Cape since 2019. Before that, he served as a provincial leader for the Freights Front Plus after attaining his PhD in Educational Sciences from the University of Pretoria. Vainant, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here.
0: We, we, we always like to ask um, our viewers, oh, sorry, sorry, the people that we interview, um, that come online to tell a bit of their personal story. I mean, you've had a very, I mean, your your business, uh, the, the the representation that you do as an MP for the Freedom from Plus has a unique connection in terms of your family ties that's also had a history with that uh, political party. And in that regard, we kind of want to ask you if you just have some interesting personal stories to share about your grandfather, or perhaps just growing up with a family in general. Yes, well, that's... Uh... That's interesting, uh, in a
1: sense that everybody's uh, story is equally interesting. Uh, just not everyone are asked about it or everyone is asked about it. Uh, I was born four years after my grandfather uh, was murdered, so I never knew him uh, as a person. I grew up uh, knowing my grandma very well. Uh, I was well, basically 30 when she, uh, she died at, at the age of 99 um and then of course we grew up with a you know my my grandfather had seven children two daughters and five sons uh, exactly the way of my own family also my my, my father also had five sons and two daughters and uh, all that i could say is that being part of this family and knowing them you know we had annual family gatherings for a long time until my my grandma also uh, passed away uh Bears no reflection to the Hendrik Verwoerd that you would uh, get to know in popular history uh, kind of portrayals. Mm. Um, So, you know, my my, my uncles are all very clever men, uh, all very shy, also. They may sometimes seem to people to be a little bit blunt because they are not outgoing, spontaneous kind of people. Uh, all of them uh, studied in the natural sciences, interestingly enough. Uh, I've thought about that. My mother also did. So only my uh, one aunt, uh, she uh, became a social uh, worker, which was my grandfather's first uh, direction of study also, uh, the sociology. In fact, he had been the guy who brought uh, sociology as a subject to South Africa um, after his studies in America. So, uh, well, it was just a family, like any other families with lots of uncles and aunts and uh, cousins and stuff. uh, My mother is the second oldest uh, child of of the Firmur's family. Um, And we grew up in Pretoria. I had basically two addresses in my life. The one is in Pretoria until I completed my studies and then in Orania. I I should say my uh, undergraduate studies. Mm. Afterwards, I did a a master's in sustainable agriculture while living in Orania at the University of the Free State. And later on, I proceeded with my educational studies, which is the most recent uh, I've done. Uh, Scaring to think that that has been completed 10 years ago already. Mm. Um, But in fact, you know, if you would like something interesting for me, there's not much to find. I'm just another guy living in Orania and doing a specific job.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's always that scenario of when you look at someone that has perhaps, you know, well-known grandfather, well-known father, they forget that they're also human, they just had a family and it's just a normal family life. So it's important to remember that as well in terms of the the greater history story. Um, in terms of that story, there's so much many ties between um, the, the, the Friars One Plus um, and the National Party and so on to what, what was known in uh, South Africa as the Afrikaner Bruderbond. Um, there was a book that came out in that era called the Super Afrikaners, which goes into detail about, you know, at, at length to which the Afrikaner Bruderbond captured the state, it captured the clergy, the, the education, the sectors. You know, as, as someone who saw perhaps just the smallest glimpse of that life, I, I realized that you were that your grandfather, unfortunately, wasn't alive when you were alive, but as somebody who may have gl- had some sort of glimpse into that life, what's your opinion of the Afrikaner Bruderbond and the veracity of these allegations? Mm.
1: I have a very mixed opinion on the Afrikaner Bureau Bond. It came into being in 1919 and it was a kind of a, you could say, a social self defense unit. Mm -hmm. Um, If in the new South Africa, which used to be new in 1919, which is old now, um, in that new South Africa, which was very British and, you know, British politically spoken, dominated, and then English. Socio-culturally speaking, Uh, it was definitely not to your advantage to be an Afrikaner and the invitation which the British Empire used to extend to their colonial subjects was, if you are really fine enough, you can become an Englishman. That's That's the great compliment we'll bestow upon you. You can become one of us. We don't really regard that what you are as very valuable. But you can leave that behind and join us as the greatest, uh, you know, empire in the universe. And they should make the little joke about the guy um, captured in the Angler War. And his god told him, you know, um, the British Empire is so vast, the sun never sets upon it. And he answered, yes, but the Lord knows he can't trust you in the dark.
2: Um, <laughs> but, I
1: mean, that's the... the um, attractiveness of becoming part of this huge empire, Afrikaners, or should I say a section of Africaners specifically decided that is not what we would do. We would like to modernize and develop ourselves economically and culturally by using our own identity, our own language, our own well culture. And uh, that didn't quite count to your advantage uh, if you wanted to enter the higher echelons in business or uh, commerce, whatever, in, in politics or in, in, in government. So the Brotherhood Bond was uh, founded as a, a confidential organization. And I think very often it is like that, that if something starts as a vehicle for the underdog, it's mm. as if that vehicle doesn't quite notice when it's not the underdog anymore. Mm. So it has a kind of a, an aggressiveness or a kind of a you know, a tendency to show the teeth, even when it's not necessary. Uh, I have a little uh, funny story about that. You know, the bond was only for men in the olden days. So evidently my mother was not a member. Uh, but my father became the chair a chairperson, chairman of the Brother Bond I think in 1980 or somewhere there around and the high school where my older brothers and sisters went had to get a new headmaster and she returned my mother was on the you know on the management whatever what they called it at that stage but the, the parent body who would appoint mm-hmm. the, the headmaster so she returned the, the evening after the meeting my father asked uh, for whom did you vote? And she said, a specific person, I won't say the, the name now. And he said, oh, uh, why? And she said, because he's not a Bruderbonder. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was uh, it. Was a little bit of a, a jab, but a joke, you know. Mm. Um, but but uh, when I was in high school, that was indeed my, my headmaster. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the, the Bond had a way of... Um, well, of trying to get its way, you know, to have it their way. Mm. Um, but I, I think the the, the powerful, um, the image that it had as this all-powerful body who decided everything before it was decided, or everything before it was decided in real life, I think it's exaggerated. The Bruderbund never had such a huge uh, membership. I think towards the end, when the uh, Afrikaner government was very strong into power, you might have found that people would become members of the Bruderbond rather to be served than to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of the Bruderbond had been all along uh, to serve. Where our families break, with the Bruderbond came, is when um, the whole, let's call it reformist kind of politics of PW Botha came in. And uh, the idea was that the Brüderbund should be one of the agents, um, pers- uh, persuading Afrikaners to to you know to uh, reconcile themselves hmm. with a the new reality. And we were part of the group who said, well, uh, there's actually nothing like power sharing. Uh, you can share land, but you can't share power. Uh, and let's see. Let's look at better ways to share the land than the homelands policy, which was evidently not working, uh, or not reaching its, uh, the goal that was set for it. But we will not be able to share power, it, either going to be on this side or on that side. And uh, I had a little bit of the experience of a family being ostracized, um, not in a very brutal way or anything. But my dad used to be the chairperson of the Bond and that was a, you could say that was an important, or a, you know, a prominent at mm. least position. And then he resigned, and then he um, had this uh, experience of newsletters going into divisions of the Bond telling you know you shouldn't associate with this guy, and this is a problem, mm. and that is a problem. Uh, some of it was about ideology; some was just personal. Yeah. uh so, that's why I say I have a mixed feeling about the Brutal Bond. I really think they are uh, held guilty for stuff that they never did, but that, that they were influential. Mm. Um, it, it has no doubt, that much of what they did, I think, was very good. You know, in terms of uh, the self-help kind of economic uh, development, you could say one important thing is to mobilize your own capital, mm. your own people's capital. So, you had folks cars. Which was uh, a little bit a fruit of the Buddha, not as complete as you know. Some sometimes, if you look back, things look m- much more planned than they had ex- uh, in fact been. Mm. You know, sometimes things just happen, mm. Uh,
0: mm. and and then some people like to say, hey, "Yes, that's why I planned it uh, all along," but they no. didn't. Yeah, they they, they actually oh. claim it. Th- that's right. Yes. Mm. So, but if in a certain uh, church
1: board, there were prominent brooder owners, they would suggest that let's take this uh, community's account to folks, and not in one of the imperial banks or in the agricultural cooperative or whatever. So there was this kind of collusion of interests. Mm. Um, And I think also one of the things is nobody can know everybody. So you have to have some way to judge. You know that's where uh, stereotypes comes in. Yeah. And uh, the Bond used to have a very high standard, which they kept on living and you know morality. So uh, to, to to be divorced was a no no. You you yeah. would lose your membership immediately. So people had this idea that. Okay, I don't know you, but you are a member of the Bruderbond, so I think I, I know something about that. Yeah. So it's it's actually networking. Right. Um,
0: now that's actually like, my, my old story. The Bruderbond is isn't very powerful today. It's influential, but it's not what it had been because it can't um, dish out the sheets anymore. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, but you said it said it's 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 kind of a, a social preservation group. Initially, it was started as that uh, against the um, oppression at that time of the uh, colonial masters in terms of the the imperial British Empire. And in the same way, the fundamentals upon which the Bruted one was then founded, uh, the freedom and uh, the purpose. Uh, sorry, the, the goal of um, self determination of of making you know your work. Uh, your results, your work—that type of scenario—is according to the Freie Front's Pliss's um, description as well. Some of their founding principles is that is that freedom and that um, determination to 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 make your own work uh, to to make you the benefit of of the of the effort that you put in. Um, so, yeah. could you perhaps, in, in that regard, just elaborate on that and just tell us what are the core principles and policies um, of the the Freie Front plus Okay, the basic um, thing of the freuds
1: Freightsefonds- Front is that we say the South African constitution is uh, devised in such a way that you would think this is a rather homogenic cultural community. That's all South Africa. In contrast to a country like say Tanzania after the um, uh, violence a few years ago or Ethiopia a little longer ago, Ethiopia under Mengistu also had this notion of there are no sub-ethnic groups, they are just Ethiopians. Mm. And then when they had to deal with Eritrea's uh, independence drive and they couldn't suppress it anymore, then they they re-sort the whole Ethiopian state saying, we have a federation now with different cultural groups in every state and they give a lot of attention about what what about a minority in this state which is a majority in another state how do you deal with those kinds of things but it also says if a if a member state wants to secede like eritrea wanted to how do they go about so the whole process is in the constitution and the interesting thing about is that Ethiopian unity was preserved by that Mm. and not dissolved because once you could get out you would think but do I want to now Mm. or did I just want to get out because I couldn't Mm. and um, that's a kind of thing that uh, you know in South Africa uh, well we have we have two ways in which ethnicity or cultural diversity are denied. The one is, okay, we are all just South Africans. Now, just to, uh, to, to um, uh, look at that, uh, I would say cultural communities is a primary reality. Mm-hmm. National borders is a secondary reality. But mm-hmm. what we are doing in South Africa is to say the secondary reality, the borders, which is actually artificial, yeah. that is the primary reality. And cultural groups should abide by that and put their own identities below that. Uh, so, um, this whole reconception of South Africa could take many forms. In 1994, it was just Afrikaners who thought that uh, there was any sense in that. Most of the other cultural groups fell in. The Zulus with the IFP in a certain way they kept most of what you could say uh, a federal character and um, and also a federal practice in the province or the kingdom of KwaZulu-Natal. Mm. But for the rest, basically all the people just uh, went for this rainbow. So the Freedom Front was specifically uh, founded as an Afrikaner party. Working for Afrikaner self-determination in the meantime other minorities has come uh, to us and say you know That what you want for yourselves would actually be nice for us, too So we extended our mission uh, to say we are the self-determination party not necessarily only an Afrikaner party That doesn't allude anything to the Afrikaner self-determination we are aiming at It's just saying we are not the only ones uh, seeing
0: some value in that reconception of South Africa Hmm. yeah and uh, the thing that's kind of there's 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 an interesting um correlation between uh the the concept of self-determination and uh, identifying the different cultural groups that south africa has such an incredible diversity of and then um putting them into sort of like a federal type state where these groups can then identify with themselves and their groups and then also uh, orientate their environment their borders uh, according to uh, sorry what's going on within their borders according to what their cultural practices are the the problem is, or rather, the issue that's often raised about um, this policy from uh, the French farmers in various you know documentaries um, and other forms of media that's been portrayed about the French farmers is that they they say that there's a relation between this type of land reform in terms of a federation system. Um, and uh, apartheid, which specifically focused on the segregation of certain communities, um, you know, it's it it has been portrayed, that, or suggested rather, that the third one plus is striving to portray apartheid in a positive light as, as a form of you know federalism rather than segregation, uh, or that it's trying to whitewash history. How exactly would you respond to that? Respond to that in terms of like the, the, the correlation that people are drawing between federalization and uh, the apartheid era segregation?
1: Yeah, let's start by saying. That most of the members of the Fre- Front, Freedom Front in uh, English, um, if they are too young, their parents would used to vote for apartheid, for the National Party or the Conservative Party after that, and therefore it would be, um, in a sense, a little bit artificial and uh, not very credible. to to say, okay, no, but we don't have anything to do with that. Let's just forget about the past. Of course, uh, one is not going to create a better future by, you know, just uh, delving on the past. But one has to be honest about where you had been and what you were thinking. And the problem that we are, in fact, um, resisting is the idea that one... Should, if you are an Afrikaner, accept the narrative of, let's say, the, fifth, the 40 years between 1948 uh, and 1994. Let's say that half century. Yeah. You should accept the the narrative of the ANC as if it is a neutral narrative. Mm. That's that's just history. It's not ideologically coloured or anything. It's just the way that been. While that is not the case, if uh, If if I listen to my colleagues in Parliament correctly, they would. Well, it's not that they would; they do very often say the whole system, which was just geared towards the disadvantage of Africans and the advantage of whites. Now, uh, the, the the problem with the whole story is that apartheid was, in a sense, not in a sense; it was essentially. Uh, uh, an attempt to maintain minority rule in South Africa. Mm. And we should add to that that minority rule wasn't uh, a swearing word all over in history. Mm. Uh, in previous times, the question was who has the most military power, not mm. who has the greatest numbers. So whether it is Shah zulu in southeastern Eastern South Africa or whether it was Napoleon in Europe or Bismarck Julius Caesar um, long ago they never counted people the only way the, the reason why you would count people is to know how many soldiers you could mobilize mm. so minority rule had not been a swearing word all along but it became that mm. and Afrikaners tried to sidestep the whole um, the whole, let's say inevitability of majority rule Hmm. And I would say that with uh, the policy of separate development, I mean the National Party let the word apartheid behind it in the 1950s already. Uh, It was actually just reused by Afrikaners while saying sorry. Um, It might be, and I I would say it probably is uh, true that for many people, the whole separate development story was just a nicer word for saying we are not going to give the blacks anything if we yeah. could help it but then there were definitely people in black education in the service of the homelands in many other departments who very sincerely worked to the advantage of black people yeah. well the problem is that it was all geared towards maintaining a white minority mm. and we maintained that far too long We maintained that to the point that no middle road was possible anymore. Mm. If we would have looked at some kind of federal system, if we would have looked at something like saying, okay, every ethnic group has a majority area but Afrikaners don't, we should Mm. constitute the majority area somewhere and then we have to make that idea a reality by concentrating our numbers, then a federal option could have been credible. But in the minds of most of black South Africans, every word from separate development to good neighborliness to federalism to whatever else we thought of was just another way of l- not letting them have the power. Mm. And then black people also started to identify with a black generic identity as opposed to ethnic identities. Because ethnic identities was identified with and rule mm. so for africaners in the context of what i mentioned just now we wanted to develop through our own language and identity we thought that would be the logic thing for black people also to do to develop through Sotswana or through isu mm. but the way they viewed that is ah, oh, yeah you're just busy with the old colonial game again of dividing us so that we are all minorities and uh, therefore, I think by the 1980s, it must have been abundantly clear that the generic black identity um, was a dominant one. The hmm. homelands which was based upon the premise that ethnic identities might develop more imp- uh, importance in people's minds. That that had not happened. So the, the, the freedom of the Freedom Front is to be is to be found not in a a recreation on a smaller scale of minority rule, but in something which was never known in South Africa. And that is a place or places where Afrikaners by virtue of their numbers, not in spite of their numbers, can dominate an area. Whether it would be smaller or bigger would depend on the numbers to be mobilized. So that's a one end of the one part of the Freedom Fronts policy, the other part is that Afrikaners live in places where we know we're never going to dominate it politically again, it's, it's not possible, but even there, we think we have a right on Afrikaans schools, we have a right to our cultural uh, monuments and uh, you know, places of interest in the specific area. And I think that they, you know, if I could advise the government, they would advance much faster with the transformation of community and the economy. Mm. If they could make Afrikaners feel safe by saying, let's say the city of Polokwane, which we used to call, or still call, Petersburg, mm. as an Afrikaner community which makes two primary schools and one high school uh, feasible. Mm. So you have it. We're not going to, uh, you know, large an uh, attack on that every year. You're safe with that. You have it. Then the Afrikaners in that area would be much more cooperative and say, okay, so how do we have to transform this country? I am safe now. Hmm. The, The kind of majority thinking the ANC and the government is employing is that everyone must become part of the majority. Dr. Cornet Mulder, our our, uh, chief, once asked at the nation-building conference, now how about minorities? And the relevant minister answered, it's easy, just become part of the majority. So, Mm -hmm. forget who you are, Mm -hmm. become part of us. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not what we are
0: uh, aiming at. But that's a very similar sentiment to the original British sentiment in 1919,
1: right? Exactly. I think, you know, in a certain sense, you could say South Africa was a segment of the British Empire, and then it became a little empire on its own. Mm. And it's as if people who inherited an empire don't really voluntarily give it up. So it was a British empire, but then Afrikaners got it through the ballot. with mm. was, a, you know, a, an interesting type of ballot where only white people could vote, but we got it and then again we didn't want to dissolve the empire there was a attempt with the remnants which i mentioned just now but the idea was that at least the economic heartland of hunting and other highly developed areas should remain white and Mm. that remain is a very funny word because it wasn't white but we thought of it as white Mm. um so then because we were not really uh prepared to give up the empire and uh, get our freedom in an un-Empire way uh the ANC took over the whole empire and the ANC is also not going to give up the empire mm. by free will yeah
2: um
1: so that's that's basically the thing maybe you know bad government will end the empire mm. Uh, I once thought of, you know, so South Africa, if you want to mention a social construct, then it is the land or the country of South Africa because it's a line on a, on a map. Hmm. But what keeps this social construct together? It's power lines. Yeah. Big power uh, producers in the, in the Pumalanga I felt these mm-hmm. days, also in the bushveld, at Alice Rassle and then the lines mm-hmm. going to every corner of the country that holds this country together. And if ESCOM fails, and if people are generating their power in a in a um, what do you call it in a in a decentralised way, yeah. every farm, every factory, every house, every church, every everything uh, produces its own energy. Then the whole idea of south africa in some way dissolves mm. um the big thing is to say okay you know neither nature nor community can really tolerate the vacuum so yeah. what are we going to replace this uh this dissolving south africa with mm. otherwise you know it might be very much like the uh, american succeeding in getting rid of um uh, what do you call uh, Hussein?
0: Oh yeah, um, mm. Saddam Hussein, and then just leaving a lot of chaos uh, being in, in its place,
1: then, mm. then you, you,
0: yeah.
1: you, you haven't right. really right. reached anything.
0: Right, and one of these um, absolutely dividing factors uh, which drive people to, you know, different sectors uh, of the political spectrum in South Africa is, of course, the expropriation without compensation bill that's currently being discussed in Parliament. Um, and I mean in the nation as a whole, and it's kind of, uh, some say it's, it's kind of ironic because this taking of land uh, is actually exactly one of the things that happened uh, in the past. So they kind of see it as a history repeating itself. But just, you know, regardless of the morality or the situation around it, what do you think about the legality and the practicality simply of the bull itself? Okay, it is one of those things that one has to
1: start thinking In the historical context because otherwise uh, it's inconceivable Um, and that's also where i would say the narrative of south african history is highly simplified by the anc exactly to suit itself because if it would be a little bit more nuanced lots of land would also be ceded from south africa to lesotho and botswana and uh, the kingdom of eswatini uh, but they are not going back that far, <laughs> for, yeah. for for uh, obvious reasons. Yeah. And also the whole history where land was not just expropriated from, from tribes, but where there were valid transactions taking place. There were wars also, but there were very good relations and valid transactions. And you could say Afrikaners was just another tribe, not strong enough really to subjugate other tribes, the subjugation on a great on a grand scale actually came with the empire, which had the necessary power to do so. Uh, we never had it. You know, yeah. we we like to say at Blood River when we had the Zulus, where we wanted them, we mm. had not had them in mm. any you know such yeah. place. Mm. Um, so uh, that's the first thing. The whole expropriation without compensation starts with a very uh, thin narrative of South Africa, which is uh, devised for a uh, you know, for a specific reason in a specific way. But then I would say South Africa had an economy which completely transformed from the pre-modern economy before 1886. Mm. You could also say 1866 with the um, uh, diamonds in Kimberley. Yeah. That's where the modern economy reached South Africa. But it really reached it in a, in a way which extended to every corner of the country with the discovery of gold in Johannesburg. Mm. And then you had an economy which was built on the Western model of economic development. Mm. Before uh, before whites came to South Africa, there was not no such thing as Title D and land uh, ownership regulated by a a deeds office. Mm. But then this happened and the whole uh, economy was built on that framework. And what one has to say today is how do you take this framework and fit it with your own uh, political uh, views and, and ideals much in the way that it has happened in, in southern uh, Southeast Asia, hmm. where countries uh, succeeded, or not countries, nations, succeeded in merging their traditional way of seeing things with the Western model of economic development. Yeah. And in some, you know, there are many different, you can't say there's the rule. There are many different ways in which we, uh, that had been done, but that's not what is done in South Africa. south africa the um the idea it seems to me is to keep on taking bit by bit from those who have uh, in order to give the have-nots and after everything has been depleted to a certain extent now we have to turn to land that's the one thing the other thing is land is highly symbolic Mm. Uh, in Afrikaans we call everything grond but in fact the division between grond and land is very important Mm. grond land in that sense is just a a, a medium of production and it can be traded and whatever but ownership of the land is part of one's identity Mm. and that's why Afrikaners realize why it's so important to black South Africans but it's also important to us. Um, so that is that side to it. Now, if you get to the present situation and you look at the capital markets, the way it works, um, or it worked, and and how South Africa's economy is structured, then expropriation without compensation will really just pull out the cornerstone out of the whole building. Yeah, and it may lean a little bit for a little while, but sometimes it will come crumbling down. So we understand the symbolism, we understand the you know the, the the emotional impact that land has, but you also have to deal with it in a way that will preserve the economy. Otherwise, you know, we can all share our poverty within
0: a few years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this is it's, it's a very, very good um, take on in terms of how the history combined and the understanding in uh, the fundamental understanding between uh, the economic benefits of land and the ownership and the identity combination between the two. Um, there's also a very strong identity combination in terms of what you alluded to earlier uh, in the city of Polokwane regarding um, you know schools, schools for, for for Afrikaans people and Afrikaans communities that are in certain areas. And there are universities um, in in South Africa who, for the past couple of years in a, a you know five to ten years have had a, a hugely controversial debate on whether or not Afrikaans should be taught at universities so I mean there's definitely the one perspective where you're again feeling like not only schools in Polokwane but universities all over the country are being threatened the way that the Afrikaans is allowed to, allowed to be practiced or not but also just the kind of slow almost want to say degradation of Afrikaans as an academic language as more and more Afrikaans kids simply switch over to English because it's easier so how do you feel about uh, also what's, what's your opinion about the battle, the legal battle on whether Afrikaans should be told as a primary language at these universities and also just the slow degradation, or at least the perception of slow degradation of Afrikaans in these environments?
1: My father had the saying when we were still in the very early uh, times of Orania and that was to say that every institution at the end reflects the society in which it functions hmm. so you know we were all very loyal tickets uh studied at the university of pretoria and really had a, a this um, this feeling of pride we said you must know that Turkish will just reflect the society of the 20 metro and it you know it may be possible to to uh, keep it a little bit longer or a little bit shorter but that's the end of it that's a destiny so, uh, in that sense, some of us uh, people who settled in Orania or um, grasped the whole idea of Urania, even if not settling uh, here, would say, well, we've come to peace with that long ago. Yeah. But nevertheless, uh, at the, t- the time that I came to terms with it, I was maybe 25. But now my children are at university or I had already been in university. Now it's uh, very, you know... It's practical politics for me now. Mm. Um, and um, I would say it's part of this whole unifying thinking in South Africa. This nation of South Africa should be English. Mm. It's, a, it's a black nation. Uh, Whites will be tolerated if they know their place. Uh, but it's an English-speaking nation. now. I actually don't quite understand it. We have this uh, nine uh, official languages, which make it impossible for anybody to know all official languages. But if you had uh, a movement at that stage saying, let's create a super Nguni language and a super Sutu language, then it would be possible to know four languages. Mm. And then you have your vernacular in every area, your Sepedi, or your Setswana, or your Iskloza, or Swati, or whatever. Uh, But for official purposes, you know, like in Afrikaans, uh, it's very much differently uh,
0: spoken in the Makwaland and in Pretoria, in the eastern suburbs, and And in in Southern Morse, wherever. Um,
1: So one could have something like that, and that could even have uh, gone over to the tertiary educational sector. But in the end, it was only Afrikaners who really thought, but we have something, we have a legacy in Mm -hmm. academic research, in academic activity, which we would like to, uh, you know, to remain. Mm -hmm. So, the uh, Minister of of Higher Education, Dr. Blayden, he really regards that only as a way of longing to apartheid. Mm. You white, you little boers, You didn't, you know, you, never really made peace with the new South Africa, and now you want to uh, perpetuate it in little pockets like your universities. I think that's uh, also taking a, a very thin perspective on the whole issue, uh, and I think we should work on keeping Afrikaans alive in the public universities as long as possible. But that's a transition. In the end, we'll have to take that responsibility upon ourselves. And academia is a you know, very good example of that, with uh, some very relevant degrees being presented by academia already. Of course, if you want to become a, an industrial engineer, you can't do that with academia uh, already. You would still have to go to Pretoria or to Stellenbosch or or Vatwatersrand or wherever. But it's a transition, and uh, you know, it's another little saying that my dad always had. He said there might be an association for saving the rhino, saving the elephant, but there won't be an association for saving the Afrikaner, except Mm. if it is being run by Afrikaners. We just have to do it ourselves. Mm. Um, So that's a, you know, on on the one hand. parliament, I'm on the uh, portfolio committee for education, mm. uh, I very much argue against the forced anglicisation of Afrikaans universities, mm. but anyone who can count and who has some insight in the ANC knows it's not going to, you know, you can, you can um, retard the process, but you can't stop it. Yeah. And therefore it's more important to work on what we have for ourselves and what we can have for
0: ourselves. And that holds to the self-determination and the self-preservation nature um, of the Afrikaans community and the Afrikaans culture. Um, I then also want to relate that to um, the success of the of of the Freedom Front Plus in 2019 in the 2019 election. Um, It's something that you know if if you were to look at uh, social media as your only source for uh, political uh, predictions you would say that the EFF would have you know skyrocketed they could have become the new majority party Um, and that well, according to the state, uh, to, to the votes, at the very least, it really didn't happen. But what really did come out of left field that people kind of didn't expect, at least in the public um, uh, media section, was the success of the Freud's Fund. What exactly did you attribute uh, that success to specifically?
1: Well, I think there are a, a number of things, but I'll, I'll um, highlight two. The one is exactly this question about expropriation without compensation. Um, it could be in a little bit uh, subconscious way, but the settlement which was reached in 1994 basically said, okay, the age is going to take over the government. You know, it hasn't defeated the, the previous government, so it, it couldn't take everything, but it would take the government. And then it would guarantee property rights. Now, that's the long game, because if you have the government, you can take the economy in time. But Africaners, uh really did not see it that way. They thought, okay, now we have this constitutional dispensation which is cast in stone. And not even the angel Gabriel, I don't know what his name in the English yeah. Bible, um, can change that if it comes because it's set in stone. We have what we collected in economic terms. We've only given over the government. And that's a settlement which suited Afrikaners very well. Unknowingly to us, to many of us, uh, because I wouldn't say I didn't realize that, um, many black people, I would say a majority of black people, thought it was an uncompleted settlement, saying we've settled the economy, uh, the, the politics, but we haven't settled the economy. That must still come. But Afrikaners clung to this settlement, and in that context, the DA was a very nice party to to align with, because it also aligned with a constitutional dispensation. It was just an opponent to the ANC. Yeah. So we had this nice dispensation. We just wanted a better government, mm. and the DA could uh, 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 well pretend to be able to give that, while the mm. Freedom Front said, "Now we." We don't want to have a better government. We want to have a better dispensation. Mm. So most of the Afrikaners all along said, we're not really all that interested in the better dispensation. We think the dispensation is fine. That's a government we should change. And then came uh, expropriation without compensation. And people said, well, what do you know? The settlement is broken. Indeed, we do need a better dispensation. And that turned people to the Freedom Front away from, well, not many Afrikaners were at the ANC in any case, but away Mm -hmm. from the DA, which is very much uh, identified with the whole constitution and constitutional dispensation. Mm -hmm. And then, fortunately for us, and one can't always count on your opponents making errors, but the DA was with his uh, foot in its mouth more often than not during the 2019 Um, you know, in the build-up to the election. And that definitely helped people who had been in doubt to to go over to us. And, uh, you know, it could be that the DA could really take a a rabbit out of a hat uh, in the following past months, but at present it really doesn't seem as if they are um, recovering in any important way.
0: Yeah no definitely and um it, it's it's also just cost uh, you know this way in which the DA which has been you know the main opposition party ever since 19 uh, well ever since the forming of the DA um, as the con- conglomeration of the Democratic Party and the National Party I mean ever since that they've kind of been this, oh, I don't want to vote for the ANC, but none of the smaller parties is going to be worth my vote. So I'll just vote for the opposition party, which is the DA. And this type of like upset in terms of uh, their policy stance and, and the way that they're handling things is kind of casting a lot of doubt in terms of what the future is for a lot of the smaller parties, because it seems like any of them could now take the official opposition stance that they so successfully had. Well, you know, completely had for the past couple of years. Uh, in that regard, what do you see the future of uh, the Freedom Front Plus? Uh, do, do you see it remaining a minority party? Will it become the, the, the main opposition party or perhaps even reach majority stations? Is, is there a path towards that? Um, and, and as a side question uh, from my own perspective, I want to know, do you think that the Freedom Front Plus would be more successful if it rebranded itself as a classical liberal party uh, with the values of individualism and self-determination and a smaller government? Yeah.
1: Um, let's let's start with the last part. Uh, the Freedom Front wouldn't be successful in rebranding itself as the main liberal party because it is not. Okay. Uh, the, if you if you want to label the uh, Freedom Front in some way, one could call it a communitarian uh, party, which doesn't put the main emphasis on the individual but on the community, mm. which of course should not be uh, you know uh, be. Um, Uh, would you not think it's something like uh, national socialism where the individual's Mm -hmm. importance completely is dissolved by the community it's it's not what we are saying but the, um, the relevance of the community in the sense that people are what they are because they are born and grow up within communities and that the community isn't essentially the thing which bounds you up and from which you have to be liberated to reach your true self, Hmm. or whatever all those terms uh, are, you know, to reach uh, self-actualization. You have to go beyond the community. The community is actually the shoulders on which you stand to reach Hmm. what you you can be. So I think concerning the DA, there will always be a a place for a really true liberal party in South Africa, but it will be a small one. Hmm. And um, they try to remain liberal at core, but to reach out to as many as possible people and Hmm. in the end maybe they lost something of their true identity, but uh, that's their story. Regarding our story, we are uh, working with communities. I would not say that we will become the main opposition party. I think black consciousness and African pan-Africanism, in many different uh, forms, will keep on crystallizing around. If it's not the if, if anymore, because they may all sit in a very small room thinking about tax evasion, um, then it will be around something else. But that is the that is the uh, um, you know the question which is going to be asked to the ANC, how are you going to deal with pan-Africanism, which is very prevalent in people's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, the Freedom Front uh, will keep on representing more uh, communities. As we always used to say, you might not think self-determination is just apartheid on a smaller scale. It is essentially something different. But you should also not think self-determination is just a rainbow on a smaller scale. Mm. It's also something fundamentally different. Mm. Um, I think that future of South Africa will lie much more uh, in a in a kind of um, coalition type of politics uh, in which the freedom front will always play a role. You have mm. countries, uh, let's say the Greens in, in, in Germany, or some of the religious parties in Israel, mm. which are not very... Uh, they are not one of the main parties, but they have the ability to you know to be the kingmakers. Mm. So you would have two or three main things. And you say what is important to us is well X, Y, and Z. We discussed yeah. it all night, so I don't want to go into that again. Mm. So we can support you, but then at least we need this. Mm. And especially the whole nice notion of geographic self-determination so that Afrikaners, you know, just uh, as an aside, KwaZulu-Natal is a Zulu folk start. Whether the IFP governs or the ANC or maybe the EFF or maybe a new party, which we haven't seen yet. And Mm. uh, we had all this unrest in the Vembe region about Mm. where the border between the Venda-dominated district and the Shona, or the Tsonga that you I know, dominated the district should, should lie. So all the all the ethnic groups in South Africa have their main areas. Africans don't. And mm. if we try to establish that, it is regarded as highly racist and uh, you know unacceptable. And it's part of the Freedom Front's role to change that uh, mindset to actually show it as just another um,
0: manifestation of the variety which we have in South Africa. Hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 it's it's kind of the idea that the Afrikaans people are actually quite spread out, where you could almost say that the Northern Cape is the highest concentration of people that speak Afrikaans, but it's not the highest concentration of Afrikaans people. It's a, it's a very complex scenario where they don't really have a central geographic location that determines their identity. But we'll talk about that shortly in terms of the story for Orania. I just first want to hit on um, something else, and that's that um, it's just kind of you know, it's, it's a very cruel joke that the general state of parliament decorum in South Africa is I mean, entertaining would be a nice way to put it, to say the <laughs> least. But there's, there's so much time that's wasted on, you know, points of order, on apologies. And, you know, the, there's definitely a sense in the South African public where they just want to know what can be done about this. Because the disruptions and the, you know, pu- the publicity plays by certain political parties is getting kind of old. <laughs> so I just want to know what, what is your opinion about what can be done about just the general state of parliament decorum?
1: That's a very difficult thing because the essence of tradition is that everything is not written down. There are some shared ideas of how should it be done. And I've heard that somebody says the whole British or the whole United Kingdom's constitution is only, it's simply not done. Yeah. Now, uh, the decorum of the of Parliament, um, what I think of the E.F. specifically, it's the nearest that you can get to a Bolshevik party, mm. who will use every rule in order to destroy the whole basis for the rule. They feel nothing for parliamentary rules, for all the, you know, all the ideas of checks and balances in, in that whole uh, setup. But they will use the rules to say 40 of us can each one ask a point of order. And mm. it can't be denied because how do you speak and know what I'm going to say yeah. and then I say exactly what the speaker thought I would say but he couldn't have known it so now mm. my neighbor must also have the um, the, the, chance the opportunity mm. and before I came to Parliament um, when when uh, president ex-president Zuma was the first time disrupted and we for the first time had the white shirts entering the uh, Parliament and all the violence with that. I just had this um, this terrible feeling that I can understand authoritarian states because you can't have that. How can you have that? You should not, you know, those people should be thrown out. Mm-hmm. And then you rectify yourself by mm-hmm. saying, okay, but we can't do it that way. We, we are, uh, you know, we are democratic people we, we can't have it just you know throw out those um so in a sense i would say uh if the voters don't reject it mm. then it's not going to end if you want to look at something similar uh the afrikaner weersandsbewegen uh had some some part of, uh, of its whole presentation, which many Afrikaners found quite uh, attractive and mm. acceptable. And then there was this disruptive element, which mm. just completely uh, swept it from the table, yeah. not being taken seriously, not by the ANC or by America or whoever, mm. but by the target supporters yeah. who said, okay, no, 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 we don't do it that way. That's mm. not us. If that's not going to happen with the EFF, um, then this is just going to become worse and worse. Mm. And one has this kind of idea that there must be some light in the end of the tunnel, but sometimes there's not. Mm. Um, South Africa, the whole setup of South Africa, um, will have to be redesigned at some stage and everyone has his own idea about how that's going to look like you might get some uh, right-wingers would say yes and that will be the restoration of white uh, rule over the whole of south africa another one would say well at at least then we won't have any whites anymore because we'll just chase them into the uh, the the waves Hmm. Um, so everyone would have its own idea but the present south africa is actually descending into something which at a certain stage will have to be conceptualized from the beginning. And there, I would say, enclaves of or areas where things are working and where things are effective and efficient, those will have a disproportionate influence on mm. the whole, how the whole will be conceptualized once it is done. Mm. But, uh, you know, if anybody would, I, I don't share a very high um, po- posit- you know, positivity hmm. that the parliamentary system, as we know it, will mend itself. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Actually, but no, I, that- I I do like the perspective saying that it's inherently the voters who choose to have this type of scenario because it's the voters that vote those type of. Um, you know, actions into parliament by allowing them to continue to exist there. Um, you could theoretically say that the reaction of the um, past election was actually a testament to the fact that the very same voter base perhaps did not believe in, in, in the way of disrupting uh, the democracy and, and, and the freedom of speech. But it is also very good to say that, you know, it's going to be the voter's choice. And if the voters do decide this, then they, they actually have a right to stay there, and they should stay there. And you should then work through this in order to, to, to come to a, a you know, a result. Um, what well, one can say of the
1: EFF is the whole ideology of Pan Africanism um, is a very strong ideology in South Africa, but it didn't have a very uh, able vehicle. The PAC or the ZAPU or none of the other uh, movements embracing Pan Africanism was really good organizations. As you, uh, while you can say the ANC with a charterist kind of thinking, non racialism, I don't really think non racialism resonates so well with many African individuals Mm. as pan Africanism does. But the ANC was a very effective, strong movement, and the PAC had never been that. Mm. Now the EFF is that. Mm. Um, And well, let's see what's going to happen. Are people going to? Uh, gravitate more to the kind of um, a charterist, non-racial, that kind of idea,
0: or Mm. are they going to gravitate towards a pan-Africanist view? Right. Um, So, lastly, I just want to talk about um, uh, the town or city of Urania, um, specifically, because I know that you live there and I know that your father founded the... um, uh, I don't know, do you you classify it as a city or a town?
1: Well, let's say, uh, with a wink, we would say it's a start
0: yes a exactly yeah that's that's because in Afrikaans we would call called a stat which translates to a city um but so let's say that the the um the city of Aranya was founded by your father in in a lot of ways it doesn't actually go out there and advertise itself to the world as like this place where you should go um if you share their ideals and then you should visit it it, it exists uh, because the community willed it to be uh, they, they wanted it to exist and because of that um, at least from the outside perspective that's the environment which you're welcome to go to but then this is the way that things work there um you're not you know you're not you're not encouraged to go there or you're not you know uh, trying to portray this as an amazing place but see that's a thing that's the perspective from somebody that doesn't live there I want to know from the perspective, from your perspective, what is the core ideas and the drive behind Urania Um, to to make it? Do you believe it to be a success story? Do you believe it is something that you want to grow, invite more people to join? Was it rather just something you think is working really well in the way that it's currently working?
1: Yeah, I would say that um, 20 or 25 years ago, I would have thought Urania would by this time have been much larger than it is. But maybe it's just because I didn't know enough about developmental economics and how it is really to get the economy coming up from the ground. On the other hand, had the idea of self-determination and of a specific e- area where Afrikaners can establish themselves uh, being part of the settlement of 1994. Then, uh, Wirania could indeed have been much uh, bigger and a much larger town. But the main thing of Irania is to say that if Afrikaners want to govern something, they have to be the majority in that something and the only way to be a majority is to do your own work Mm. and that is in fact very untraditional for Afrikaners because Afrikaners spread out like butter over a slice of bread all over the country living on this substrate of black labour or in any case not Afrikaner labour and and even thinking that that's the way it should be Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what, uh, you know, what got to us in 1994. It just, uh, you know, we we couldn't keep that up. So in Urania we said we have to do our own jobs, our own work, our own menial work, all the unattractive work also in order to be the majority somewhere Mm -hmm. and to be quite honest that somewhere we, we could be a majority is now less than 10,000 hectares, and mm. it might be 2,000 or 2,500 people. Mm. So it's not very impressive in global terms. But it is something that people before said it's not possible. Mm. So uh, it's also something which I borrowed from, from my brother Carl, who at a certain stage said, uh, when Wirania was found, that Afrikaners said it's not possible and it's not necessary. Hmm. Since then, Wirania has proven that it is possible and the ANC has proven that it's necessary. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what Wirania did very well is to grow organically. Uh, y- you could grow mushroom-like. With a huge influx, and then you don't have the infrastructure, and you don't have the economy, and you, you can't you really can't uh, you know carry this superstructure, and then it just uh, goes down in a lot of smoke and dust. Mm. So we are growing uh, organically, and we have created a reality, and that reality is growing you know uh, fast. And I can't exactly remember who, but one of these economic uh, management type of gurus or investment gurus said the eighth wonder of the world is um, compound interest.
2: Mm, Yes.
1: Now it works like that with economic growth also. We were tiny in 1994, 1991 when we started, but we grew with 10%. Mm. And that 10% for 30 years is something rather impressive if you compare it with what it had been and you know even if you could get the momentum to turn that 10 percent growth to 20 percent growth, mm. uh then it would be quite something so we are uh, i would say proud in a very um now i'm looking for the word what is biscaya in engels in a modest yes. way yes we are very modestly proud on on what has been reached in, South, uh, in urania because it's not saving the Afrikaner yet. To save mm. the Afrikaner, you should have a university. You should have numbers in which to, you know, to uh, give people room right. in where they can reach their potential. Mm. But what we have is a very dedicated community, which is working to exactly that. Mm. And. Uh, Therefore, some people think that Irania is eagerly looking for South Africa to break down. We are not, because uh, there should be a transition and for Irania to be stable for a hundred years, South Africa also has to be stable. Um, we don't have any interest or any you know, profit by, by seeing South Africa going down in dust.
0: Okay, well, that's that's, that's amazing. And it's it's very good to hear perspective from, um, uh, from a resident of itself, because it's just, it it, it completely breaks down the uh, almost want to say general narrative that people try to portray as this place that people that don't like the current political situation in South Africa just go and hide away in. And it's not really about that. It's about building your, your own community sustainably and organically through time which is better because that means it, it's there to stay if like you said it grew like a mushroom it would most definitely you know in terms of what history has taught us uh, go down in flames um but in general this has been such an interesting discussion well thank you so much i just want to give you a last opportunity to plug or say something you'd like to
1: no i would just say thank you very much um i often say that the freedom front is in a certain sense Afrikaners who are freedom loving Uh, It's their uh, diplomatic corps, um, Mm. or or however you (laughs) pronounce that correctly. Um, Let's let's call it the diplomatic service. Mm. Um, Afrikaners with a very, you know, who are conscious about their identity can be represented in every town council, in every provincial legislature, in the National Party by way of the Freedom Front, and all people have to do if they want that diplomatic service is to vote for us. Hmm. Um, Then then we constitute exactly that. South Hmm. Africa, as it currently is, is increasingly becoming an Afrikaner hostile environment. Hmm. If you you look at how many uh, laws were signed in Afrikaans even after 1994, now it won't happen. Yeah. Uh, many other things. You mentioned the universities. There are many things in which that, that it's, it becomes an hostile environment. Now, if you live in an hostile environment in uh, abroad, then you will be sure to know where the nearest consul or um, or embassy is to mm-hmm. assist you when you get into some trouble. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a role of the Africa uh, of the Freedom Front for the Afrikaner. For some Afrikaners, of course, there are many Afrikaners who doesn't like what we are doing at all. uh, It doesn't resonate with them, Mm. even the least. I I don't pretend to talk for all Afrikaners if Mm. I say this, but this is our job and we are glad to do it.
0: Mm. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it so much. And um, uh, thank you for talking to us and taking the time. I just want to say also to our viewers, um, if you've liked the message uh, that Venansan portrayed and, and the perspective that he shared, um, please do share this uh, video with your friends and family and those around you um, just to determine to get all possible perspectives about possible worldviews out there and give the people the opportunity to really have a discussion about things um, from a fair, a fair point, not from a general narrative. Um, From our viewers, if you've made it this far, you've most definitely liked the video as well. If you like it, it gives the channel a lot of support in terms of how it grows and allows perspectives to be shared. And if you want to support us financially, of course, there's also a uh, Patreon. But we'll supply all of these um, links uh, links and details in the description below. So thank you so much for watching. This has been Worldview.